listening to the Bible 126 show. Okay, we are in the book of Judges. Book of Judges is a strange book. It was a time in Israel when uh, things were grim. Under Joshua, they'd conquered the land. They had dispossessed the land, or were supposed to dispossess the land of its enemies. Joshua did pretty well, but the generation that followed him failed to follow through. The great tragedy of the book of Judges is they didn't do what God told them to do. And they tried to make peace with their enemies, and these pockets of appeasement turned out to be uh, troublesome for several hundred years. And again and again and again, Israel fails. They turn to idolatry. God has their enemies oppress them. And uh, they'll typically repent and he'll raise up a deliverer, deliverer from the oppression. And as soon as they do, they go right back. The book of Judges is characterized by four conditions. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's an indictment. You see that phrase come up again and again and again. That's bad news. They weren't doing what God told them to do, doing what they thought what was right in their own eyes. Third thing was there was a disparagement of the Word of God. And the fourth, which is a result of all of that, they were in bondage. What's fascinating about the book of Judges, to me, this time going through, is to realize it's a book of prophecy. That's true today. The problem in this world is there's no king in Israel. But there's a king coming, praise God. The problem in America is that everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. Relativism, value relativism is the law of the land. Nonsense. Tragic. And of course, the Word of God is disparaged. Well, we've been going through the book of Judges. We're going to be in chapters 15 and 16 tonight. We have been through, uh, this is our 10th session. We've been through the Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, and we went through Deborah and Barak, and we went through Gideon. We spent, we spent two sessions on Gideon. And then Abimelech, and then some others. But uh, last time in chapter, session 9, we had chapters 13 14. We talked about Samson, which uh, Wearsby likes to call the light that flickered. And the next two chapters on him, there's four chapters on him. The next two chapters is the light that failed. One of the things about Samson, a very colorful story. Most of us know the story. And yet, uh, the lessons are grim. Because here's a guy that was much blessed. He was raised as a champion. And the great tragedy was that uh, he never was a leader. He was a champion, but not a leader. Um, And he had some serious failings. Colorful guy, but very enigmatic. Up till now, up up until the last couple of chapters, we've been dealing with the Ammonites in the east. Now we're starting to focus on the Philistines of the west. And the tragedy is they're not going to subdue them. It'll take David, Saul and David and so forth, to really deal with the Philistines. The Philistines derive, of course, from the, uh, originally from Egypt. Some of them went to Cyprus, Phoenicia, but they're uh, Hamites, seafaring people. Um, But they had a technology advantage. They were experts in smelting iron, which gave them an advantage in their weaponry. And they outlawed anyone else having any iron skills. And it won't be until Saul and David that they start dealing with that. But we're going to so we're going to uh, deal with this interesting character by the name of Samson, 
But he's going to exemplify what James tells us in his epistle, that a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And that's exactly what we're going to find. Here's a guy that's going to be empowered by the Spirit of God, and yet he continually will yield his body to the appetites of the flesh. Three times at least, probably more. He gets himself in trouble. He was called to declare war on the Philistines, but instead he fraternizes with the enemy. He even tried to marry a Philistine woman. He fought the Lord's battles by day, but disobeyed the Lord's commandments by night. He was given the name Samson, which means sunny. We talked last time about his initial exploits. In the next two chapters, I'm going to suggest to you what Longfellow pointed out, that great is the art of beginning, but greater is the art of ending. And uh, in Ecclesiastes, Solomon tells us that the end of the matter is better than its beginning. You know, it's, it's strange how we as Christians celebrate when someone comes to the Lord. We have a rousing message, and we have an altar call, and some people come down and accept the Lord, and we celebrate that. And that's fine. I'm not disparaging that. But we celebrate that like a climax. It's not. It's the beginning. I often have audiences say, how many, how many of you are saved? Can I see your show of hands? How many of you are saved by the Lord Jesus Christ? Praise God. My next question is, what have you done with it? See, finishing well is the challenge before all of us. And I think that there are many lessons in Samson. We're not going to make this a preachment, but, but as, we, as we look at his life, colorful and yet tragic when you compare what he might have accomplished. You know, the Scripture actually is full of disappointing examples. One of the, one of the, the, the authentications of the Scripture is that it doesn't miss its words, doesn't pull its punches. It talks about the blemishes as well as the successes. Remember Lot. He had the privilege of walking with Abraham, yet he ends up in a cave, drunk, having incest with his daughters. And King Saul had great promise to begin with. Godly man, originally. Ended up in a suicide, destroyed by his own stubborn pride. King Uzziah was a godly man, until he became uh, strong. Then he tried to usurp the place of the priests, and God judged him by giving him leprosy. And so it goes. Paul's helper Demas abandoned the ministry because he loved the present world. If you watch, you'll see many fall by the wayside as we go. Our prayer for each of ourselves should be for finishing well, enduring, running the race. Later on, we're going to find out that Saul and David, you know, they, they dealt with the Philistines, saw them as enemies of the Lord, and they sought to subdue them to the honor of God, giving God the victory. Samson's attitude is a little different. He'll take some victories, but they're really selfish forms of personal vengeance. You really want to call it by spade. Let's jump in. We're in Judges 15, and in the first few verses. But it came to pass, when a while after, in the time of the wheat harvest, that Samson visited his wife with a kid. And he said, I will go in to my wife under the chamber... But her father would not suffer him to go in. He thought he was still married. He went home pouting because of all the problems. He thought he was still married. Brought a kid as a gift. By the way, you notice it says it's the time of the wheat harvest. That would make it probably late April, early May. But by the way, this is a time when the fields are very combustible. And that's going to be very important in a few verses. 
But uh, Samson thought he uh, was still married to this gal. And they get to verse 2. And her father said, that the, the, the girl's father, I verily thought that thou had utterly hated her. Therefore I gave her to thy companion. Is not her younger sister fairer than she? Take her, I pray thee, instead of her. See, he thought he had, uh, even though he hadn't actually consummated the marriage, he, he thought he still legally married to her back there in Timnath. Took a gift, went to the father's house, and now he's shocked, of course, that not only is she not his wife, but has been given to his best man. Probably that one of the gang of 30, if you recall, that was the one that, who was tipped off by the gal about the riddle. Remember, Solomon gave that riddle at the party, and, and uh, they prevailed on her who found out the answer and so forth. So he was actually cheated. But he pays the debt by going to Ashkelon and, and knocking off 30 guys for their changes of clothes to pay off the debt. So, uh, you know, there are, we see Samson here as a... Uh, Surprise bridegroom, they're probably, you can make a list of surprised bridegrooms in the scripture. Adam woke up one time and was surprised, very pleasantly, of course, but um, Jacob woke up and discovered he was married to the wrong woman, you remember in Genesis 29. Boaz woke up in the middle of the night to find Ruth at his feet, and that, of course, is an incredible love story that is in Ruth 3 and so on. See, Samson had paid the legal price for his wife, but now he had neither the money nor the wife. So he's angry. And we see the, the father of these gals offer the younger sister, but uh, he was not impressed. So he decided to take out his anger uh, on the Philistines. I might mention, by the way, in Leviticus 18.18, 18, it's expressly forbidden. It's forbidden to marry a Gentile anyway, but also uh, the sister situation is specifically dealt with in Leviticus 18.18. 18. If anybody should have been punished, it should have been the father-in-law. But he was the real culprit here. But Samson decides to take out his anger on the Philistines. You may recall that even in the last chapter, the parents who were objecting to the marriage in the first place, the writer of the book of Judges points out they didn't understand that the Lord had a purpose in this. The Lord is, is in effect, uh, setting up a cause of action against the Philistines here. So Samson said concerning them, Now shall I be more blameless than the Philistines, though I do them a displeasure. <laughs> and uh, what does he do? Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took firebrands and turned tail to tail and put a firebrand in the midst between the two tails. And by the way, the word here, shual, in the Hebrew is uh, translated foxes, probably is really referring to jackals. Foxes are loners, but jackals are gregarious. They, they get together in packs. And the word caught there in the Hebrew, shalak, really means captured. The uh, intonation here is that there were traps or pitfalls that he collected these 300 jackals or foxes, tied their tails together with a firebrand, and turned them loose in the dry grain. And if they had been individually, they would have probably run to their dens, but together that would cause confusion, panic, panic them, and they would run wild through the uh, the wheat. So you'd be pretty sure that their fear of fire and their inability to navigate would uh, make them panic. Turns out they ran around not just in the fields, but the, the fire spread to the vineyards and to the olive groves. So this is not a trivial little prank. This would have wiped out a major part of the harvest at that time. It was uh, destroying the three main crops. When he had set the firebrands on fire, he let them go in the standing corn of the Philistines, burn up both the shocks and the standing corn with the vineyards and the olives. And so the Philistines said, who's done this? They're upset, of course. 
They answered Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he had taken his wife and given her to his companion. Now you remember that the reason she weaseled the key to the riddle out of Samson in the last chapter was because these Philistines, these 30 guys, threatened her that they were going to burn her and her father. Because of that, she found out the riddle from Samson and tipped them off so that uh, Samson was embarrassed. As John Corson might point out, her plan backfired (laughs) because they did ultimately burn her and her father with fire. They couldn't cope with Samson, but they uh, did the next best thing and they vented their wrath on the the wife that was given to his companion. So in the long run, her betrayal of Samson didn't uh, save her life after all. That was back in chapter 14, verse 15. So Samson said unto them, Though ye have done this, yet will I be avenged of you, and after that I will cease. So see, it's going, it's getting back and forth here. So he smote them hip and thigh with a great slaughter. He went down and dwelt in the top of the rock of Etam. This phrase, hip and thigh, or leg on a thigh, is actually a wrestling metaphor in the Hebrew, and it really becomes idiomatic of a a ferocious attack. So it starts. The Philistines went up and pitched in Judah and spread themselves in Lehi. The men of Judah said, Why are ye come up against us? The Philistines have come up against the men of Judah. Now you need to understand this invasion of Judah didn't help Samson's popularity, but it also you may be reminded that the Israelites had allowed themselves to be accommodated to the oppression of the Philistines. They were content to submit to these uh, hostile neighbors and make the best of what they would consider a bad situation. So instead of seeing Samson as a deliverer, they just saw him as a troublemaker. And this again is one of his failings in a sense because he should have been uh, uh, not just a champion but organizing, should have been a leader, should have been rallying them against their enemies and then trust God to give them victory. But anyway, the Philistines come up threatening against the men of Judah, and they said, Why are you come up against us? And they answered, To bind Samson are we come up, to do to him as he hath done to us. So they're asking the men of Judah to deliver Samson to them. So then 3,000 men, now that's even odds, isn't it? 3,000 of them against one of Samson. Then 3,000 men of Judah went to the top of the rock of Etam, that's where Samson was hanging out, that's the high ground in the shuffle of that valley there. And they said to Samson, Knowest thou not that the Philistines are rulers over us? What is this that thou hast done unto us? He said unto them, As they did unto me, so have I done unto them. You know, it's interesting. This is the only time during the period of Samson's judgeship, if you will, some 20 years, that the Israelites mustered an army. And it was for the purpose of capturing and delivering one of their own men. Sad commentary. Sad commentary. You know, a nation is in a sad state, indeed, when the citizens cooperate with the enemy and hand over their own God-appointed leader. That's really what's going on here. Dismal, dismal record here. They said unto him, unto Samson, We are come down to bind thee, that we may deliver thee unto the hand of the Philistines. Samson said unto them, Swear unto me that ye will not fall upon me yourselves. They spake unto them, saying, No, but we will bind thee fast and deliver thee into their hand. But surely we will not kill thee. 
They bound him with two new cords and brought him up from the rock. You know, this is actually a heroic posture on the part of Samson. The only reason they can do this, even though there's 3,000, is because he submits to it, as you'll see in a minute. But so that his own countrymen won't get hurt, he yields, allows himself to be bound. And uh, when they came to Lehi, the Philistines shouted against him. And the sp- then an interesting thing happens. <laughs> the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. And the cords that were upon his arms became as flax that was burnt with fire, and his bands loosed, or actually melted is the term, from off his hands. Then we have this interesting um, <laughs> response. He found, apparently nearby, laying on the ground, whatever, he found a new jawbone of an ass. The word new actually means moist. This is, this is not a dry, brittle you know, kind of thing you might find on the desert. It's very brittle. This is fairly, relatively fresh, so therefore it's relatively strong found a new jawbone of an ass, put forth his hand and took it, and slew a thousand men therewith. You see the irony here, by the way, the, the Philistines, who are, you know, a thousand strong or more here, are possessors of the most advanced weapons technology of that period. That was what giving them strength. They had iron and iron chariots and iron spears. That was, a, in that day, a absolute advantage. But and, and with that advance, of course, they had subjugated the, the, the Israelites. And here the Spirit of God defeats 1,000 of these with the jawbone of a jackass. I think that's <laughs> that speaks for itself. It may remind you back in chapter uh, 3, remember Shamgar, had, did, uh, you know, he, he was a farmer. He, he, he knocked off a bunch of guys with just a, a, an ox goat. And uh, you're going to find later on in First Chronicles 11 that uh, one of David's mighty men would slay 300 with a spear. And they were professionally trained warriors, his mighty men. But here Samson, uh, with the Spirit of God and the jawbone, wipes out a thousand Philistines. But he had a way with words. <laughs> uh, remember at the wedding feast, he did this clever riddle. And after his great victory, he writes a poem. In fact, it's actually an elegant uh, paranomasia, as they call it, based on the similarity of sounds. He says, with the jawbone of an ass, heaps upon heaps, with the jaw of an ass, have I slain a thousand men. What you miss in the English translation is the word for donkey is chamor, and the word for heap is chimera. They sound very much similar. And so he talks about a donkey and a heap. You see, he's, he's doing a, a two words that sound very much alike. The way uh, James Moffat renders it, with the jawbone of an ass, I have piled them in a mass. With the jawbone of an ass, I have assailed the assailants. That's sort of the, the flavor of it. It came to pass when he made an end of speaking that he cast away the jawbone out of his hand, and that place is called Lamath Lehi, or Jawbone Heights. It's another way of addressing it, okay? And then right after this, so often it is after a great victory, what can you expect? Testing. Whenever you have a great victory, whenever you're really high, be careful. Testing will follow a triumph. Right after the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, uh, they were thirsty and hungry and were challenged. Remember Elijah on Mount Carmel, right after an incredible victory. He had that humiliating flight to Mount Horeb in 1 Kings 18 and 19. And see, if triumphs aren't balanced with uh, trials, then uh, we have a danger of becoming proud and self-confident. It's part of the aspect here. So anyway, he was sore athirst and called on the Lord. It's interesting that he does consider himself, with all his other faults, as a God's servant. And uh, he didn't want to end his life by falling into the hands of the Philistines. 
Of course, that's going to happen in a different way. When we, he called on the Lord, and the Lord said, Thou hast given us this great deliverance into the hand of thy servant. Now shall I die for thirst and fall on the hands of the uncircumcised? And God clave in a hollow place that was in the jaw, and there came forth water thereout. In the place of the jaws where it reads. And when he had drunk, his spirit came again, and he revived. Therefore he called the name thereof Enhakor, which is in Lehi unto this day. And he judged Israel in the days of Philistines 20 years. But that's a look ahead. We're going to have more to, to say here before we go. The, uh, Enhakor is really the spring of the collar, or the well of him who cried, is what the translation might be. So, so let's move on to chapter 16. We get to the big climax here. We don't know how much time, by the way, these aren't necessarily little episodes that are all connected. There can be substantial intervals of time between these, obviously, because they actually encompass a 20-year period. And just a few of the exploits reckoned here. Then went Samson to Gaza. Gaza, the southernmost of the five major cities of the, of the uh, Philistines. God, uh, Samson went to Gaza and saw there a harlot and went in unto her. So here again, he's getting himself in trouble. And was told the Gazites, saying, Samson has come hither. And they compassed him in, and laid wait for him all night in the gate of the city, and were quiet all night, saying, In the morning, when it is day, we shall kill him. Gaza, you know, is a very important uh, town, about 15 miles southwest of Ashkelon, where we were earlier, and uh, about 40 miles from his hometown, so it's, it's down south. So anyway, they're all prepared to slay him, but he apparently gets tipped off or somehow knows. Samson lay till midnight. And rose at midnight, he doesn't just leave town, he takes the gates with him, post and all. He took the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts, and went away with them, bar and all, and put them upon his shoulders, and carried them up to the top of a hill that is before Hebron. Now, <laughs> the city gate is typically a structure two stories high. These are not little... You know, they typically had guard rooms on both sides flanking a tunnel-like opening. And that's apparently where these guards were hiding. But he just took the gates. And Now, there's some debate as to exactly how far he carried these. There are some scholars that believe he carried them. To the, how you, it depends how you translate it. He actually, If he carried them all the way to Hebron, he carried them 38 miles. It depends how you translate verse 3 here. Um, there is a hill, a prominent hill, El Montar, that uh, is overlooks Hebron. That uh, would only be a few miles. To get up this, he'd be climbing through thick sand. So there's two things here. One, he, of course, is, is uh, it's an exploit. But it also, see, a gate was not only protection for the city, it was the place where the officials met to transact business. And so this was to possess the gate of one's enemies is a metaphor meaning to defeat your enemies. So he is, in effect, Enacting that metaphor, it's an act of humiliation. This is also typically rendered in some of the classical art with Samson climbing the hill, Montar, etc., and uh, for what it's worth. It came to pass afterward, again, some time can be going by since he took the gates of Gaza. It came to pass afterward that he loved a woman in the Valley of Sarek, whose name was Delilah. The Valley of Sarek uh, lay between uh, Zorah, his hometown, and Timnah, where he got in trouble before. It's on the border of Judah and Philistia, if you will. And it's, of course, the, it's, it's the choice wine country, incidentally. We talked about that before. The, the city of Beth Shemesh is located there. You know, it's interesting. Whenever Samson went into enemy territory, he always says he went down. And that's not only a geographic phrase, it's also a spiritual phrase. 
It occurs all through, you know, three or four times through this narrative. Now, we don't know a lot about Delilah. We presume, we don't know, we presume she was a Philistine, but she, uh, she had a Semitic name, which means devotee. So some scholars speculate she may have been a temple prostitute. Or her name might mean loose hair or small or slight. It's a pun on the Hebrew word for night, which is Lila, Delilah, see? Uh, just like Samson is, uh, is, is related to uh, the sun, Shemesh. You know, it's interesting, um, just like David and Bathsheba, this story has captured the imagination of scads of writers, artists, composers, what have you. Uh, Handel included Delilah in his oratorio Samson. Sanson wrote an opera on Samson Delilah. Imagine when Samson courted this gal in the Valley of Sorek. He never dreamed that uh, what, he, what they did together would be the subject of a major Hollywood movie projected in color throughout the world. <laughs> but uh, I wonder how David's going to feel because everybody meets David. They all know his story of Bathsheba. I mean, he's, you know, throughout eternity. But uh, anyway, the lords of the Philistines came up unto her because, see, she knew they were having a thing going. So. Philistines came up to her and said unto her, Entice him and see wherein his great strength lieth, and by what means we may prevail against him, that we might bind to afflict him. And we will give thee, every one of us, eleven hundred pieces of silver. Well, we know there are five major Philistine cities, five lords. That's going to be very important when we get to 1 Samuel 4 and 5, where they they actually capture the Ark of the Covenant. It's probably one of the funniest passages in the Scripture. And uh, in the interest of time, I'll, uh, we'll see if we can squeeze that in, but uh, I don't want to delay our primary thing here. But anyway, we know there's five lords, and each one of them are giving her 1,100 pieces of silver, so that out of five guys, that must be 5,500. That's an enormous fortune. Um, and uh, we'll discover uh, in, later in chapter 17 that Micah offered to pay his household priest 10 pieces of silver a year plus room and board. 10. She's getting, you know... 1,100 times 5, 5,500 pieces of silver for this little errand. So she's being handled very generously. This also tells you how important it was for the Philistines to somehow subdue this troublemaker. He was. This isn't a tactical issue, it's a strategic issue. It's very important. So Delilah and Samson are seeing each other. So Delilah says to Samson, Tell me, I pray thee, wherein thy great strength lieth, and wherewith thou mightest be bound to afflict thee. And Samson said unto her, If they bind me with seven green withs that were never dried, then shall I be weak and be as another man. And the lords of Philistines brought up to her seven green withs, which had had not been uh, dried, and uh, she bound them with them. Now there were men hiding in wait, abiding with her in the chamber, hidden, of course. She said unto him, The Philistines be upon thee. And so Samson, he broke them up, and as a, as, a, as a thread of tow is broken when he toucheth the fire, so his strength was not known. So in other words, he was just jibing her. That obviously had no real effect. So he put it to a sort of a playful, some kind of playful test, only to find out that he'd been pulling her chain, so to speak. And, and by the way, this, these widths are green, new, moist vine tendrils, pliant twigs made of crude vegetable stalks, typically. Anyway, she realizes that, he, that, that was just a ruse. So when they're seeing each other, we're going to see it a little later, there's a phrase which reveals that they apparently, verse 16, that Samson saw her day after day. So they're, they're, this doesn't all happen in one episode necessarily. 
But Delilah said to Samson, Behold, thou hast mocked me and told me lies. Now tell me, I pray thee, wherewith thou mightest be bound? He said her, If they bind me fast with new ropes that were never occupied, then shall I be weak and be as another man. Now she should know he's pulling her chain again because that didn't work before. But in any case, Delilah took new ropes, bound them therewith, and said to him, The Philistines be upon thee, Samson. And there were liars in wait abiding in her chamber. And he brake them from off his arms like a threat. Delilah said to Samson, Hitherto thou hast mocked me and told me lies. Tell me wherewith thou mightest be bound. He said unto her, If thou weavest the seven locks of my head with the web. Now there's two different kinds of, there's horizontal looms that the men use. There's also vertical ones that women use. And this is probably the kind they have there. But anyway, he's probably lying there and she fastened it with a pin and said to him, the Philistines be upon thee, Samson. And he waked out of his sleep and went away with the pin of the beam and with the web. She said, And how canst thou say I love thee when thy heart is not with me? Thou hast mocked me these three times and hast not told me wherein thy great strength lieth. So she's pressing him. came to pass when she pressed him daily with her words and urged him so that his soul was vexed unto death. And uh, this word daily uh, in the NIV says day after day. So this is an uh, ongoing thing. But she obviously keeps prevailing and finally he yields. He explains the real secret of his strength. He told her with all his heart and said unto her, There hath not come a razor upon mine head, for I have been a Nazarite unto God from my mother's womb. If I be shaven, then my strength will go from me and I shall be weak and be like any other man. He's telling the truth. It wasn't because his hair is long. The hair was just a symbol that he's a Nazarite. But he's broken that vow at least three different ways up till now. Remember, he was in the vineyards. He wasn't supposed to go there. He also took meat. He took the carcass of dead. These are all, we went through that in the earlier chapters. He is, he is shown disregard for this Nazarite vow. And that's what will, this is the final severance from that vow, if you will. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called for the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up this once, for he hath showed me all his heart. And then the lords of the Philistines came up unto her and brought money in their hand. And of course, this is rendered in classical art in a number of different ways. But She made him sleep upon her knees, and she called for a man and caused him to shave off the seven locks of his head, and she began to afflict him, and his strength went from him. And she said, The Philistines be upon me, Samson! He woke out of his sleep and said, I will go out as other times before and shake myself. And he wist not that the Lord was departed from men. How tragic. What a shock. What a dismal end to this champion. In the verse 7, the Nazarite vow, excuse me, Numbers, chapter 6, verse 7, the Nazarite vow reads literally, because the consecration, the netzer of his, of, of his God is upon his head. The basic meaning of the word netzer is separation or consecration. It's also used of the royal crown in a number of passages. So see, Samson's long hair was in effect a symbol or a royal crown, but he lost it because of his sin. You say, well, that's Samson. What about us? Remember what Jesus says in Revelation 3.11? Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast what thou have. Why? That no one may take your crown. We all face this challenge. But anyway, Samson knew not that God had departed from him. The Philistines took him and put out his eyes, gouged out his eyes, is what the Hebrew actually says. 
and brought him down to Gaza and bound him there with fetters of brass, not leather, brass. And he did grind in the prison house. But time goes by. And in that time, much is happening. Among things, his hair, the hair on his head began to grow again after he was shaven. Philistines foolishly began to disregard that. But more significantly than that, he is obviously growing spiritually. His eyes were dug out. That's what had gotten him into trouble all along. Chapter 14, the first couple of verses, chapter 61. And uh, Samson is one of the uh, three, at least three men in Scripture who are especially identified with darkness. King Saul went out in darkness to get the last minute help from a witch, you remember, in, in 1 Samuel 28. Judas went out and it was night, if you may recall. Saul lived for the world. Samson yielded to the flesh. Judas gave himself to the devil. And all three ended up taking their own lives. Howbeit the hair of his head began to grow again after he was shaven. Then the lords of the Philistines gathered them together for to offer a great sacrifice unto Dagon their god. And to rejoice, for they said, Our God hath delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hand. See, the implication is our God is greater than his God. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. They said, Our God hath delivered into our hands our enemy and hath, and the destroyer of our country, which slew many of us. Dagon. Their God is Dagon. What do we know about Dagon? Dagon has been tracked back to earlier than the 20th century B.C., long before all of this. Dagon, the worship of Dagon goes way back. He is, in some respects, viewed as a storm god by the Philistines, especially, and the Phoenicians as a sea god. But also, the word Dagon in the Hebrew also means grain, or he's a god of fertility. See, Dag, Dagon Dag is a fish, so he's seen as a fish, half, half fish, half man kind of creature. And daga is also in the Hebrew, means to multiply, to increase, to grow, and it also is a term for grain. So all those idioms are, when you track this, you'll discover there's different versions of Dagon. He is regarded as the father of Baal. He himself, presumably, is the, uh, uh, the offspring of earth and heaven, Uranus and Gaia and so forth, in, in, in the structures that we've been trying to unravel from the ancient records usually represented as half-man, half-fish by both the Phoenicians and the Philistines. So we find a number of different renderings of him. There were temples, of course, at Gaza that we're going to read about here in a minute. They found ruins in Ashdod and Bethshan. But there's also places called Beth Dagon, House of Dagon in uh, Judah, and also Asher. These are mentioned in Joshua 15 and 19. Incidentally, not mentioned often, but he is also the god that was worshipped in Nineveh. That's much later, of course. But it gives you a whole different insight into the whole story of Jonah when you realize who the people of Nineveh worshipped. Anyway, it came to pass in this big festivity going on here. It came to pass when their hearts were merry, they said, call for Samson that he may make us sport. And they called for Samson out of the prison house and he made them sport. And they set him between the pillars. So Samson was used as a, a source of mockery or entertainment. We're not sure exactly what kind of entertainment. There are two different words in verse 25 that are used in the Hebrew, one to entertain and one to perform. The first seems to imply uh, celebrate, frolic, joke, entertain. The second means to perform, to make sport or laugh. 
The second word is shahak, which is the same, gives us the name Isaac, which means laughter. But both words carry the idea of entertaining people by making them laugh. The champion of Israel is now a comedian. So Samson said to the lad that held him, Mary, he's blind, so he's got a kid that's leading him here. He said, he said to the lad that held him by hand, Suffer me that I may feel the pillars whereupon the house standeth, that I may lean upon them. He pretends to be tired. He wants to lean against the pillars. But he understands that these two, there's two main pillars that are capable of starting a domino effect on the whole temple. And the house was full of men and women, and all the lords of the Philistines were there. And there were upon the roof about 3,000 men and women that beheld while Samson made sport. It's visualized sort of a roof mezzanine situation. Samson called unto the Lord and said, O Lord God, remember me, I pray thee, and strengthen me, I pray thee, only this once. O God, that I may be at once avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. They have plans of what they believe the temple looked like, not really that material to our purpose here. But uh, Samson took hold of the two middle pillars upon which the house stood and on which it was borne up, of the one with his right hand and the other with his left. Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. He bowed himself with all his might. And the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people that were therein, so that the dead which he slew at his death were more than they which he slew in his life. This is also rendered in classical art and, of course, in the movie with Victor Mature and all of that some years ago. But then ultimately his brethren and all the house of his father came down and took him and brought him up and buried him in Zorah and Eshtay, all those the two towns about a year, mile and a half apart, in the burying place of Manoah, his father. See, his father's already died, but his, the rest of his family Give him a burial. He, he had judged Israel 20 years. It's interesting that Proverbs 25, 28 says, Whosoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. Proverbs 16, 32 says, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. You know, the great tragedy is that uh, Samson was not ignorant of his calling. He had known all along that he was called to be a Nazarite and the secret of his strength lay in a special relationship with God. The hair was simply a sign of that. But somehow Samson never came to terms with his separateness, his apartness. He'd always wanted secretly to be as other men and to enjoy the pleasures that they enjoyed. And that's a temptation that's common to all of us. You need to recognize that if you're in Christ, you're consecrated for, for his purposes. But with all the dismal record of Samson, we have to underscore the fact that when you get to the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 11, this incredible passage we call the Hall of Faith, in verse 32 of chapter 11, he's listed there among the heroes of faith. So therein lies our quick glimpse of these four chapters on Samson. But I'd like to share with you something else that I think is kind of provocative. You know, there's in classical literature... There are legends of a guy by the name of Hercules. Now, in the Greek mythology, he very likely, it appears he was a Nephilim. And there's another whole thing about that. But it's interesting, around all of these things accrue myths and legends that are colorful. But it's rather interesting to notice, understand the story of Samson 
This is a thousand years before the Greek period and all of that. In the Greek period, we have the legends of Hercules. We find that both of them are regarded as having supernatural strength. Both of them found themselves in some form of slavery to women. Both of them are recorded as, if, as with their bare hands tearing a lion apart. Both of them ultimately deal with a violent death, partly voluntary, partly forced. When we talk about Hercules, on each side of the Straits of Gibraltar, have you ever navigated through the Mediterranean? You know what they mean when they say the Pillars of Hercules, Mount Abila and Mount Calpe on each side of the Straits. They're called the Pillars of Hercules. They're said to be rent aside by the strength of his Hercules arms. So somehow Hercules is associated with the pushing two pillars aside. The Temple of Hercules at Tyre involves two pillars, one of gold and one of smaragdus stone, which is a green, almost emerald-like stone, according to Herodotus. When Hercules visits um, Egypt, Herodotus describes interesting legends about him. He says, The Greeks say that when Hercules went down to Egypt, the Egyptians surrounded him and led him in a procession to sacrifice him to Jupiter. That he kept quite still for a time, but then when they were commencing the sacrifice of the altar, which, by the way, the first act of which was cutting off his hair, he turned in self-defense and by his prowess slew them all. That's out of Herodotus about Hercules. I think it's kind of colorful. Now, when you recognize the proximity of Egypt to Gaza and the Philistines, the, the fact that some of these legends get commingled is not a surprise. And it's interesting, even Herodotus makes the remark, how is it possible for him being but one, being only a man, to slay so many myriads? A.C. Hervey points out that the prevalence of the worship of Hercules among the Phoenicians, as at Tyre and Theos, a Phoenician colony, at the close connection of Egypt and Gaza, where the prowess of Samson was so well known, are points not to be omitted in considering the probability that some of the legends of Hercules being drawn from the real history of Samson. You know, it's interesting how so many of these Greek legends have their roots in biblical truth. A good example is Aesculapius, which is classically in mythology the god of healing. Uh, his symbol, of course, is a brass serpent on a staff. And, of course, the links of the, the idea of the Aesculapius symbol of modern medicine tracks back actually way back to Numbers 21 the brazen serpent under Moses. So so that's anyway, Samson, many lessons here. That uh, concludes our first look at, at Samson. You know, we're going to, as later on when we finish Judges, we'll be getting into Samuel. And not to get ahead of the story too much, but if you want to, uh, in your devotional reading or whenever, read one of the funniest episodes in the Scripture, you want to go to 1 Samuel 4 and 5. Because the Philistines succeed in capturing the Ark of the Covenant. And they take it to their towns. And their towns are infested with rats. Uh, oh, in fact, they, they, they have it in uh, uh, with rats. And then also uh, all the Philistines get a major attack of hemorrhoids. <laughs> no, hemorrhoids. You, you find out what it means. Um, and they put the ark there in front of Dagon, and the next morning, uh, Dagon has fallen on his face, put him back up. The next morning, he's not only fallen down, his heads and arms are severed. And they finally connect the dots. They finally figure, you know, this is, having, this is not doing us any good. So we've got, they don't know what to do with it. They say, the only thing, you know, they're, they're terrified. They're going to realize there's something going on here. So they want to give it back to the, back to the Israelites. But their priest pointed, you can't just give it back. You've got to put an offering with it to appease all this. So they make an add to the Ark of the Covenant, add to the cart. that uh, they, add, they take uh, five golden mice. 
See, there's five major cities for five lords of the Philistines, and they've been infected with mice, and they, they've got the association. So they make five golden mice as an offering. They also make five sets of hemorrhoids. <laughs> now, I have a hard time visualizing how they went about that. And do they have somebody volunteer to be a model? I, I don't know how that works. It's in there. Read it for yourself. First Samuel five. They put this all in the cart. They get they get the two kind and uh, you know a cattle and tie the cart to it and, and it, it takes it back. And uh, that's the way the Philistines wash their hands of of the headache of having the ark. But that passage in Samuel has <laughs> has to be uh, one of the funniest passages. But it also leads to that era in Samuel and, and with the, uh, Saul and David, where the Philistines are finally subdued. But not until then. The, the, the period of the judges is pretty dismal. And for next time, we're going to read through chapter 17 through 21, the next session in the book of Judges, when we meet together. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Let's indeed bar our hearts. Well, Father, we were awed at the candor of your holy word. We're humbled as we see your champions like Samson, so blessed, and yet falling so short of what might have been. Father, we would ask through your Holy Spirit that you would help us to appropriate these insights to our own lives. Just like Samson, we too are incredibly blessed, even in many ways far more than he, by having so much more of your word and so much more of your plan unveiled to our benefit. How blessed we are, Father. And yet, Father, like Samson too, how we take it all so for granted. Father, we're so irresponsible. Father, we come before your throne asking your forgiveness for that irresponsibility or forgiveness for our ingratitude, our presumption, as we so continually presume upon your grace. We thank you, Father, for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have standing before you. We thank you, Father, for the gift of your Holy Spirit, that same Spirit that empowered Samson, can empower us that he might reign in our lives. But, oh, Father, help us, forgive us, cleanse us. And, Father, we too would just ask you to reignite in each of us a passion for your word. Help us, Father, to take each thought captive that we might be more responsive to your will in our lives, Father. Help us, Father, to run the race as you would have us run it. Help us, Father, to be your champion in the manner to which you have called us. We do pray, Father, that through your Spirit and through your Word, we too might finish well. Help us, Father, to run the race that's before us. Not by power nor by might, but by your Spirit, Father. 
as we commit ourselves this night into your hands without any reservation. In the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.